I am so glad you're here with us today, not just because we're kicking off a new year together, but because we're also kicking off a brand new sermon series together. As you can see behind me, uh, we're entering into a new sermon series called Masterpiece in Progress. Masterpiece in Progress. And what this sermon series is, is going to be an eight-week journey, verse by verse, through the book of Ephesians. I'm not sure how familiar y'all are with the book of Ephesians, but my own personal opinion is that it gives us probably the most comprehensive, most awe-inspiring view of the gospel that we find in the entire New Testament. I actually heard one pastor refer to Ephesians as sort of the Grand Canyon of Scripture. And I love that picture because it does, right, give us kind of a sense of, of just the, the vastness, how deep and wide this message is for us. Right? You can see far off in the distance eternity, but you also see the depths of the truth that lie in the gospel for us right here and right now. And I think that right there is why both this book and this series are so important for us. Because I think the truth is that most Christians today have no idea just how blessed they really are. Might be a little bit of a harsh statement, but I truly believe most Christians have no idea just how blessed they are. Just how much they've been given, how much they're, they're capable of, or how much they're called to. And the reason why I say that is because you can kind of see it in the way that they live their lives. I don't think they've yet woken up to, to who they are yet in Christ. And let's just be honest with ourselves, right? Let's not just be the, the pot calling the kettle black. This isn't just true about Christians out there. This is true about us in here too. Right? We all fall victim to that temptation Right, to, to, to think that these things are maybe not true of us. Right, and the danger, family, in, in not knowing these things is that we'll eventually go and we'll look for them somewhere else. When you don't know that these things are already true of you, you will go looking for them somewhere else. I heard this story about a guy named William Randolph Hearst. I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with William Randolph Hearst, but he was a very, very wealthy man, uh, businessman back in the early 20th century one of the wealthiest in the world. And, and William Randolph Hearst, he actually chose to spend the majority of his fortune on collecting fine art. Okay, so he may not look like the life of the party, but this guy actually really loved collecting fine art. In fact, I read this week that back in the 1920s, he alone accounted for 25% of the world's art market. One guy, 25%. Well, story is that one day Hearst saw a photo of this uh, masterpiece, right? This brilliant piece of art. And he became immediately obsessed with it. He just had to have it. And so he calls in his people and says, hey, I need you to go find this piece of art. And he sends them off. Well, after searching the world, this group comes back to him sort of sheepishly saying, hey, we did find it, but it was actually in your own storage facility. Apparently it had been there for quite some time. Now, can you imagine spending that much time that much energy, that much money looking for something that you already own. Seems unfathomable, and yet that's what so many of us as Christians do. We go searching for something that we already own. Are we given to this temptation to go searching for something that God has already freely given us? But family, my hope and my prayer for this series is that you would come to discover, to embrace, and to truly experience the wonderful riches that you have already been given in Christ. That's what our hope is, that you will see the masterpiece in progress that you really are. Because here's what will happen. When you stop searching for what you already have, 
Your only other response is to share what you've already been given. You see that? That's the vision for what we want to be as a church, a church full of people who understand who they are in Christ. And rather than searching for it themselves, they just want to share it with other people. See, family, this Christian life, contrary to to popular opinion, isn't just about uh, what's going to happen to you one day far off in the future. It's about your life here and now. It's about God's greater plan and his purpose for you here and now. So this is the vision that Paul is going to give us in his letter to the Ephesians. As he reveals to us that while we may be masterpieces still in progress, that we've got an important part to play here and now in God's redemption plan, in his restoration of the world. This is one of my absolute favorite books in the entire Bible, and so I cannot wait for these next eight weeks. But before we go any further, let's pause just for a moment for a word of prayer. Father, what more can we say than thank you? We are so grateful for the gift of grace. We're so grateful for the sacrifice of your son. And we're grateful for the truth that we find in your word. Pray, Lord, that you would wake us up this morning to the reality of what we've already been given in Christ so that we might live for the praise of your glory. Would you guide us this morning, revealing to us more of who we are because of who you are. Pray these things in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen, amen. Well, as we embark on our journey through the book of Ephesians, I want to help you to to kind of get a little bit of context here. And the challenge we face when we uh, look at Paul's New Testament letters is the fact that he writes these letters to a specific people, right, at a specific time for a specific purpose, right? This is ultimately a letter that wasn't written to us. And while there are truths in it that are uh, still relevant, still apply to us today, we can kind of lose sight of those if all we do is sort of like fly over them. And so think of this mental picture of not, not just flying over this, but actually I want to kind of land the plane right in Ephesus this morning, okay? I want you guys to immerse yourself in the culture. Does that make sense? Okay, let's start with the basics. If we were to take a trip to Ephesus, where we would actually find ourselves is on, on the coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. So I think we've got a map here. Yeah, it's over there on the west coast of what is now modern-day Turkey. And Ephesus wasn't just any uh, coastal city, it was actually one of the largest. In fact, if you uh, were in first century Ephesus, you would have been the third largest city in the entire Roman Empire. The third largest city probably in the world at that point, trailing behind Rome and Alexandria. So it's a huge, massive city. But it wasn't just important because of its size, it was also important because of its location. You may not be able to tell by the, the picture on that map there, but Ephesus actually stood as kind of the, the gateway between the east and the west. So any trade that was going from this side of the known world to, to this side of the known world, well, it had to pass through Ephesus. This made Ephesus incredibly important, incredibly influential. And because of all of this, it also made it incredibly worldly. It's probably one of the main things you'd notice if you, if you stepped foot into first century Ephesus is that this was a people who were hyper, hyper spiritual. They were obsessed with the spirit world. So the practices of like magic and and divination, astrology, all those sorts of things, they would be very easy to see just walking through those streets. They were all extremely popular. And so it's right there in the midst of this hyper spiritual, hyper worldly environment that Paul had come on one of his missionary journeys to plant some churches. And wouldn't you know it, in the midst of this hyper-spiritual, hyper-worldly context, the countercultural message of the gospel had taken root. In fact, so much so that at the time that Paul writes this letter, the, the church movement there wasn't just surviving, right? By all, by all measures, it was really thriving. 
And so what you'll notice is, is actually missing in the, the book of Ephesians, in Paul's letter, is that you don't see the same kind of like correction and, and discipline that you do in a lot of his other letters. Right? Instead, we're going to see a couple of different purposes that Paul is going to continue to point to over these next several weeks. If you're taking notes, I'd encourage you to write these down. These are two of the primary purposes that Paul has in writing this letter. The first is to reshape the Ephesians' view of reality. To reshape the Ephesians' view of reality. See, one of the things we have to remember when we read these New Testament letters is that they're written to first century, or first, first century and first generation Christians. Right? These aren't being written to people who maybe grew up in church, right? whose families had grown up in church, kind of like many of us probably are. These are all first generation Christians. And the majority of them were Gentiles, which means that the majority of them were coming out of a life of believing in and practicing these pagan ways that I was just talking about. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 19, uh, uh, you see Paul encountering uh, a group of believers that are still holding on to uh, these scrolls that, that talk about sorcery and those things. And so the reality is a lot of these believers were living in with like one foot in the, the, the worldly ways and one foot in like their new Christian ways. And so Paul has to, to reshape their view of reality, to get them to shift from this worldly perspective to a more heavenly perspective. So Paul writes to reshape their view of reality. That's one purpose. And the second is to reorient their focus. So to reshape their view of reality and to reorient their focus. See, Paul doesn't just want to, to reveal to them God's story of redeeming the world through Jesus. Like He wants to, to actually show them that they have a part to play in it. So that's Paul's aim with this letter to the Ephesians. And I believe that same purpose still holds true for us today. So as we embark on this journey, as we open up the book of Ephesians, as we spend the next several weeks in this book, I'd love for you to consider God's purpose for you in it. I'd love for you to ask him to, to reshape your view of reality, to refocus your heart in the same way that he did with these Ephesians. All right, we all on the same page. We all understand where we're at, who Paul is writing to, what that means for us. Okay, let's dive in. If you've got your Bibles or Bible apps, open them up to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look first just at the first couple of verses here. Paul, he begins his letter in a typical fashion with a greeting that says this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of Paul's letters begin almost exactly this way, like verbatim. But the uniqueness in Ephesians is that typically Paul would go from that opening greeting to uh, a note of thanksgiving. Right? I thank the Lord because you're so-and-so and, and this and this and you've done this and this. But instead, what Paul does here is he goes directly into revealing God's plan goes directly into revealing God's plan and in a pretty unique way at that. He actually is going to go into what ends up being the single longest sentence in your entire Bible. Okay, so I, I, I tried earlier to actually read this with one breath and it was not possible. So I'm going to take some breaths here, but I want you to follow with me in verses 3 through 14. Keeping in mind that this is one long sentence for Paul in the original Greek. Verses 3 through 14 read this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, 
according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, that is one majestically long sentence, but it's one that is of incredible importance. And let me tell you why. Because in it, God's full plan is revealed. His full plan is revealed, and it's revealed in three distinct stages. So I want to actually just uh, dive a little bit deeper into this for you this morning. When we look a little bit closer, what we see is that God's plan has actually been in place since eternity past. God's plan has been in place since eternity past. And this is incredibly important, critically important for us to understand. Because it tells us that God's plan of redemption and his plan to, to send Jesus to sacrifice for us on the cross, that that wasn't a reaction to our sin. That this has always been part of God's plan. Right? That nothing we have done or can do or will do ever surprises God, never catches him off guard. And I know that there may be some of you out there, there's some theological types who like to talk about, well, well what does this mean? Like, do, do, do we have a choice in the matter? Predestination, free will, sovereign, all this sort of stuff. And there's, there's a time and a place for that conversation. But the truth is that we are dealing with, a, with an infinite God and an eternal plan. So to try to, 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 to figure those things out definitively with our finite minds is a bit much for our brains to handle. We will simply never be able to wrap our minds around it. And the threat that happens if we try to do that, if we get caught up in trying to make full sense of that, is that we lose sight of the immeasurable grace that lies within that truth. Y'all following me this morning? We'll lose sight of that grace. That before the foundation of the world, and because God had this plan in place from eternity past, that we as unworthy sinners can stand holy and blameless before the Lord. Don't miss the grace in that truth. This has always been God's plan. It may be hard for us to fathom, but it is so important that we know. Because the truth is, this has implications for us here and now. That's the second thing this epic sentence reveals to us is that God hasn't just had a plan in place since eternity past, but he has a place for us in that plan here and now. God's plan has a place for us here and now. And I think this one is especially critical for us here in 2024. Because it's in our nature, like we talked about last week, to, to grow tired and to grow impatient, even fall asleep when we're waiting, isn't it? I think part of the reason the early church spread the way it did is because followers of Jesus, they, they actually took him at his word. <laughs> they actually believed he was coming back. And so they lived with this urgency, this desire to do the things that he had called them to do. We've sort of lost sight of that, haven't we? As time's gone on, many followers of Jesus, faith has simply just become like this life insurance policy. 
It's a one-time decision that really doesn't impact your life until it's over. But God's word tells us over and over again the plans that he has for us here and now. That surrendering your life to Jesus isn't just about rescuing you from hell. It's about using you to bring heaven here. Do you see that, church? This isn't just rescuing you from hell. It is using you and your life to bring heaven here. That's why Paul is so adamant about reshaping our view of reality because he knows we've all been given an important role to play in God's plan to make all things new. That God's plan has a place for each of us and it's an important one at that. I heard a story about a little girl named Victoria who was, was growing up in England. And this little girl, she was from a royal lineage, which meant that she was destined one day to be queen. But her parents, in order to make sure that she didn't become too, too spoiled or anything like that, they actually withheld that truth from her. Actually for a, a very long time. And then one day came and, and they decided that, okay, Victoria, she's ready to find out who she really is. And so what her tutor did is her tutor took her into this, this room and showed her this, this big old giant you know, kind of poster that had uh, the family tree of all the monarchs in England's history. And so that tutor started at, at the very top of the list. Said, okay, Victoria, now I want you to read each of these names. And they worked their way all the way through the family tree until they came to Victoria's mom and Victoria's dad. And then there was a little line. And then Victoria read her own name. And it hit her. That's me. She realized in that moment that she was no ordinary little English girl, but that she was from a royal line. That she had a heritage that would one day lead her to the throne. And so Victoria thought, well, if I'm going to be queen one day, I better start living like it now. And family, I believe that's what Paul is doing here in this letter. With this one majestic sentence. It's exactly what Queen Victoria's tutor did for her. Revealing to us who we are. Revealing to us our significance because of who we come from. Who we belong to. Right? That we too are from a royal lineage because we have been chosen and adopted as sons and daughters of God, because we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus and because we have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. That's you. That's me. That's each of us, right? And it should change the way that we live. So God's plan is set in place from eternity past, has a place for us in it here and now. And the third thing this majestic sentence reveals to us that God's plan is being brought to completion in Jesus Christ. God's plan is being brought to completion in Christ. I want you to look back with me just briefly at verse 10. This is really the, the verse that the entire passage hinges on, and it reveals to us the entirety of God's plan, which is to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. To unite all things in Christ, things on heaven and things on earth. That's God's plan. The one that's been in place, the one that we have a place in, and the one that is being brought to completion as we speak. Everything being brought together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you know, there's something I think is, is kind of missed in our English translations. If you look back, uh, Paul, he paints this picture by saying uh, that basically everything will, will, will sum up to this at the, at the end times. And the, the idea that he's given is, is back in those times when you would tally up a column, like let's say you have a column of numbers, we, we sum up at the bottom. They used to actually sum up at the top. And so Paul is pointing us to the reality that God's plan is being brought to completion and that everything will sum up at the end. That in Jesus, everything will make sense. Everything will be redeemed. And in that day, 
Family, every wrong will be righted. Every disease will disappear. Every conflict will cease. We'll live in true harmony as God made all things new. I realize we may not be there yet, but this is where God's plan is heading. So again, God's perfect plan has been in place since eternity past. There's a place for us here and now, and it is being brought to completion in Jesus Christ. Now the question is, what in the world does that mean for us here today? Right? Like, what, what role do we have? How does this impact our lives here in 2024? Well, thankfully, I believe Paul speaks to that here in this next section. He offers up a prayer, and in that, I believe he points to our purpose. So look with me, if you would, at verses 15 through 23. Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and I believe God's desire for us, is actually again wrapped up in just one sentence. If you look back at, at verses 18 and 19, you'll see part of Paul's prayer is that we would be enlightened to know three things. The hope to which the Father has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. The hope, the riches, and the inheritance. Now, why would Paul call these three things out? It's because he knows that when we come to, to understand and to embrace these truths, that we will discover our purpose as part of God's greater plan. Let me show you what I mean. Beginning with the hope of your calling. Here's the truth. When you know the hope of your calling, you will live with your eyes on eternity. When you know the hope of your calling, you will live with your eyes on eternity. I wonder how many of you have ever been on a, a road trip and, and, and you come to discover uh, that the, the outbound trip is a lot more fun than, than the way home. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Like somehow, like, you know, there's less traffic, the kids behave better, right? You get there faster. It's just an overall more enjoyable time. Well, that's just a, a tiny glimpse of what it's like to live with your eyes on eternity. The truth is it's the same distance both ways, right? But you're living with an anticipation of, of what's to come. When you live with your eyes on eternity, you are living with an anticipation of the age to come. Right? It's that hope of what lies ahead. And I want to be clear here, when I use this word hope, I'm not talking about the hope that most of us think of, right? There's this worldly idea of hope that is simply just like wishing for something that's ahead. The hope that Paul is speaking to here is much different, right? This kind of hope is a recognition of what's already been received. It's not something that you have to wish for. It's something you've already been given, right? You don't need to go looking for something you already own. Because if you're in Christ, you already have this hope, so what this looks like practically then, tell me it looks like keeping your eyes on the, on the windshield in front of you rather than on that little rearview mirror and looking back on what has happened to you in your life. 
we get so fixated on those little things, those little regrets, the wish I would have, the wish I could have. We've got eternity in front of us. Some of us are looking back on 2023, thinking, man, I missed that opportunity. I missed that relationship. I missed that job. God's got eternity out in front of you. Stop looking at that rearview mirror. Look out that windshield. Right, this road trip that we call life, it's going to have its ups and downs. Right, it's never a straight shot all the way through. There are always pit stops and detours and flat tires. That's just life. But if we keep our eyes on eternity, we'll have a hope that nothing can ever destroy. I think this is why Paul encourages us in 2 Corinthians 4 not to lose heart. He says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, for this light momentary affliction, this is from a guy who suffered in prison and was beaten. He says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. What he's saying is that when we finally get to where we're going, none of that other stuff is going to matter. Eternity is all that matters. And when you know the hope of your calling, you will live with your eyes on eternity. In the same way, when you know the riches of God's glorious inheritance, you'll live a life of praise. When you know the riches of God's glorious inheritance, you will live a life of praise. See, just as Paul does with the hope of our calling, what he's pointing us to is not just a future hope, but a present reality. And I think our nature, right, when we hear this word inheritance, we, we naturally just think of it being something that's off in the future. That's our context, what Paul's pointing to is that this is something that is true of you here and now. And I want to show you what I mean, okay? Stick with me here. Look back at verses 7 and 8. Paul says, In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished, past tense, upon us. Lavished, past tense. And how did he do this? Paul tells us, 2 Corinthians 8 9 says this, He who is rich for our sake, became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Let me say that again. Jesus, who was rich, for our sake, became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. As I read that this week, I couldn't help but think, how many of us are living as if we're poor? How many of us have been blessed with unbelievable, immeasurable riches, and yet we're living as if we're poor? heard a story once about a, a guy who had desperately wanted to go on a cruise all of his life. This guy, he came from some pretty modest means, and so he never really got to take any vacations, and he just really wanted to go on a cruise, and so he saved up every single penny that he had, and he finally got th to go on that cruise. But since he had no money left, he decided, okay, I'm going I'm to pack some, some loaves of bread and some peanut butter and some jelly and some crackers. And this guy went on that cruise, and, and he went to some pretty beautiful places, but he found himself pretty miserable as he sat in his, in his little, little cabin eating peanut butter jelly sandwiches and crackers while everybody else ate like kings. And a day came towards the end of the, end of the cruise where he just kind of had enough. And he went to one of the employees and said, hey, listen, I'll, I'll work in the kitchen. I'll scrub the floors if I have to. Like, just tell me what I have to do so that I can enjoy this delicious food that everybody else is enjoying. Y'all could probably guess how that employee, how that, that, that guy responded. He said, what are you talking about? Right, the food's part of the deal. You don't have to work for it. It's already been paid for. 
And this is exactly what happens when we fail to understand the riches of God's glorious inheritance. How we think we need to earn something that's already been paid for. Rather than simply living a life of praise and gratitude for the one who paid for it on our behalf. So what does it look like to live a life of praise? I think it's pretty simple. You embrace and enjoy what you've been given while constantly thanking the one who gave it to you. Embrace those things you've been given. It may not be much, but embrace it and enjoy it. It may not look like what you want it to look like. It may not be as big or as fancy, but embrace it, enjoy it, and thank God profusely because he is the one who gave it to you. Don't grumble over what you've been given. Don't grind to try to get more than you deserve. Embrace and enjoy what you've been given. Relish in the grace that has been lavished upon you. Amen. When you truly know the riches of God's glorious inheritance, you will live a life of praise. And the third point, lastly, as I invite the band back up, when you know the immeasurable greatness of his power, you will live a life submitted to Jesus. When you know the immeasurable greatness of his power, you will live a life submitted to Jesus. I think one thing Paul wanted to be absolutely sure that he got across to his friends in Ephesus is that there was one name that stood above every other name. Yes, dozens of gods were worshipped in that culture, in that context. But there was one who stood above all of them, and that's King Jesus. Notice how Paul intentionally points out the extent of Jesus' authority here. Right? Paul states definitively that, that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father with all things under his feet. Doesn't leave anything out. All things are under the feet of Jesus. Right? His challenge, his, his authority is unchallenged. And here's why Paul emphasizes this truth. Because the promises of Jesus are only as good as the authority he has to carry them out. Jesus' promises to you are only as good as the authority he has to carry them out. See, the reality is the Ephesians, they were living in a time where they, they had to please dozens of gods. They wanted this part of their life to go well. Well, they had to, to please and pray to and sacrifice to this God. They wanted this part. Well, then it's this God. And Paul says, no, there is one God whose name is above all other names. And not only can he give you these things, but he already has. Because he alone has that authority. So what this means for you, family, is that there is no situation, there is no location, there is no diagnosis, there is no circumstance whatsoever that Jesus does not rule over. Period. When you come to know, when you come to embrace this truth, when you submit and surrender your life to him, you will find that you have that hope, that you have these riches, that you have that power. Because Christ, who rules over all for your sake, he lives within you. Don't go searching for what you already have. Embrace what you've been given and simply surrender to the one who has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. I'd like to ask you now, if you would, just to stand to your feet. I don't know where this message has hit you this morning. Maybe you walked in looking into that rear view mirror, thinking about all the things you could have done, all the things that you should have done. I think there's part of us too that's maybe looking, maybe looking a little too far in the, into the future instead of being present with the Lord right now. 
like to ask if you would, just simply open up your hands and bow your head as I close us in prayer. Father, I stand here with my brothers and sisters in this simple posture of surrender. Lord, we know there's a, a year ahead of us that uh, holds lots of twists and turns. There's gonna be pit stops and, and detours and flat tires. But I pray that you would keep us fixed on eternity. That you would remind us that there's nothing better than relationship with you. And that because of the sacrifice of your son that we get to enjoy and embrace and relish in that relationship for all of eternity. I pray that all other things would simply fade away. And that we would live our lives with eternity in mind. Pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus.